Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powles, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again today by Courtney West, Essie Maravara, my colleagues. And we're going to talk today about managing performance and in particular managing underperformance at work. And I'm very passionate about this personally as, as an employment lawyer, but also as a as a former business owner in hospitality and as a currently as a business owner in in law, it's something that I think is critical to the business success is your capacity to actually manage the performance of your team as a whole and of your team as individuals. So we're going to unpack some of that. Um, some of it's quite practical, some of it's uh, legal. We're also going to then do the good, the bad, the ugly, as we always do, and then we've broken schedule. We didn't do SE's suggestion i'm so upset i can't believe you wouldn't want to watch <laughs> 12 angry men that's coming next but yes. we watched my cousin Vinny and um we uh with uh, joe pesci and marissa tamai ralph mm-hmm. macchio and um that's our movie review for this week but first of all managing performance um really a failure to act early and decisively on poor performing employees can be the the biggest mistake and the most costly mistake that a business can make. Um, The purpose of this, we're publishing a newsletter this week, um, sort of concurrent to this podcast to address the issues. So look out for that. There'll be a link um, under the pod for for the written advice, which goes into a lot more detail. But we're really going to talk about the key elements of managing performance, some of the choices available to employers um, and some pitfalls to look out for. And we've also had a look at some of the cases on this issue. Number one for me, if you're talking about managing performance, is, and this might sound a bit stupid and unrelated, is basically position descriptions. Uh, It's so essential that every employee you have or every class of employee or every role, however your organisation works, every employee has a a detailed, specific, up-to-date and thorough position description. How can you tell somebody that they're not doing their job adequately if you don't know and they don't know what the job actually is? So so number one mistake I find in terms of performance management is a failure to have an adequate position description. And if you don't have an adequate position description, then inevitably you fall into some of the pitfalls we're going to talk about a little bit later. Another point on position descriptions, I think another common mistake is that they can be often very aspirational about mm-hmm. roles. The type of language that's used in a job advertisement often is about attracting people. It's the language of attraction and the language of, of aiming high with your recruitment, but it's actually not a, an objective or detailed description of the job the, the the documents serve different purposes so quite often what you see on seek will then sort of find its way scheduled to an employment contract as a position description and that's the the, the, the fundamental for for position descriptions i think point two when we're talking about performance management is key performance indicators kpis it's it's critical once you've got the position description established to actually have some way of measuring, some objective, measurable way of of considering whether or not a position is being done adequately. And and KPIs are a really useful one. 
in some environments, in sales environments, um, you know, these can be numerical. Um, often it's just simply not the case. How often have you guys in previous jobs had established set, first of all, position descriptions and secondly, KPIs? I have never had set KPIs. Right. Uh, I think we've made some up when it came to quarterly reviews that right. were thrown together. Yeah. Um, obviously, in this job, I have. You, I thought I was going to say. Great we need to have a and, I'm pretty sure. And do great that. KPIs. <laughs> um, but no, it's never really been much of a thing. Isn't that a thing? No, sorry, I don't think before this job yeah. anyone ever bothered. Um, and most of my friends as well, I'm always kind of horrified to hear that everyone's really confused about what their role is, what the expectation is. Yeah. And then I ask, well, what does your position description say? And they're like, oh, I don't have I one. I don't have one. Yeah. So. Yeah. And what what and then I think people get confused between KPIs and position descriptions as well as in their purposes, I guess one being to set objective expectations of the role and the other one being more of the you know how to get you there, how how to how to measure it yeah. and I guess how to draft it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, it is it's, it's difficult and I think in some roles as well. I mean, I, certainly if I look at my initial background as a as an employer in hospitality Front of house hospitality is, is is something that is really hard to KPI. How do you measure it? In sales, it's very easy. Professional services, like what we do, fundamentally, it always comes down to the dollar number is a, mm-hmm. is, is a key indicator. But but there is always a way, and, and, and I think that it's really, really important once you start breaking down the objective analysis of what the position is, you can then, the next step is generally to try and break it down and look at what is a um how is the success of that role measured in a way that's objective and, and and it's difficult but you know certainly that's something that we provide advice on managing performance i think there's a couple of things that need to be done but i think successful businesses have some form of interactive back and forward feedback built into their day-to-day like yeah. you, you need to you a successful business is going to find a way to be discussing aspects of performance on a day-to-day built-in basis there needs to be feedback there needs to be growth development all of those things as part of just informal coaching and existing and you know uh, you know a good growth mindset that's not always possible so when you do have to formalize it I think really there's there's two different things that, that we see a lot um, warnings for poor performance and then a more formal performance improvement program um, you know a PI, PIP we're going to discuss those in a little bit of detail and some of the legal pitfalls. The other thing that I wanted to say is the big pitfall that I've seen a lot of is falling into this attitude trap, considering people's attitude. Intuitively, as a, as a boss, even as a, as a fellow worker, it's something that you fall into a lot of the time. It's like, oh, someone's got a bad attitude. It's very dangerous because how can you really genuinely know what somebody else is thinking? How can you know what somebody's attitude is? Yeah. So, so I think when you're talking about position descriptions, KPIs, I like to break things down into three key elements. You've got knowledge is number one. All, all employees need a certain degree of knowledge. Number two is skills. All employees need some skills that they use to, you know, to apply their knowledge. The third one, which is this attitude problem, I like to call behaviours. Now, behaviours are really the manifestation of attitude. If someone's got an, you know, the classic attitude problem, 
they will inevitably have a behaviour problem. It is so much more effective to discuss and to target and to engage with the behaviours rather than the perceived attitude. When, when you're talking about the dangers of not having a position description, not having KPIs, fall naturally into those intangibles. Yeah. Something's yeah. just not right. It's a feeling. It's a feeling, mm. isn't it? You know, it's a, someone can't improve based. If you say I have a bad feeling about your performance, no one actually has a chance then to improve on that yeah. or know how to directly address it. Yeah, and you're not really giving anyone a fair opportunity to identify the problem and solutions. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and I think um, it's the same thing. Nobody, no, no, nobody's going to accept that they have a bad attitude too. Yeah. Oh yeah, you've got a bad attitude. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> but also, it's not like if it isn't affecting behaviour, there's no way you would know, and it's just not actually particularly relevant. If That's somebody right. is performing their role well and their behaviour is fine, what they're thinking internally maybe just isn't a performance it's, issue. Well, it's not material then. No, exactly. I, I think that the the, the the falling into those intangibles, the attitude stuff, is is really because you haven't defined those other features and you haven't given yourself, pointed yourself as a manager in the right direction or the employee as an employee in the right direction in terms of, okay, well, what are the, what are the ingredients of success? Um, when it comes to that attitude thing, as, mm. I, as I say, people won't generally accept they have a bad attitude, but when you can break it down to objective behaviours, you know, you're late every day, mm. you're rude to your colleagues, you, know, you, you don't seem particularly interested when we're in a team meeting. Um, you don't contribute to the meetings, etc. Those are actual objective behaviours which can be measured and can be described and can be fixed. So, I guess that's the the foundation and the and the framework that I think you know. And it, it might sound easier said than done, but, but I think having those that sort of those three things in mind: um, position description, KPI, and also just what are we focusing on from that knowledge, skills, behaviours triangle. You then got the question, okay, you've got warnings. If, if the coaching is not working, if, if your day-to-day interaction and sort of growth activities are not having effect and you've really got to go to that next formal legal step, we talked about warnings or, or a PIP. It depends a lot on the circumstances. And now I, I think the way that I talk about it, I mean, often you might have a warning might be the appropriate way to go. Performance improvement plan might be appropriate. Both might be appropriate. The way I characterise them from a legal standpoint is that a warning generally is a formal notice to an employee that they're underperforming and that they risk termination. Termination of employment, I should say, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you know, they can also be used, you know, failure to apply for policies. They can be used in some misconduct situations too, but uh, I'm moving away from the idea of misconduct. This is more about unsatisfactory performance. Fundamentally, they're about protecting the interests of the employee employer if they do move to termination and and really putting that employee on notice that that might be something that, that, that's going to happen. Performance improvement plan, um, generally speaking, is more proactive. It's more detailed. I think generally speaking, it's more about actually genuinely trying to improve performance as opposed to, you know, setting up for, a, 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 you know, a termination of employment. Not always, but I, but I think that's that's generally how they're, they're characterised. But I think often both at the same time 
can be what's required in a, in a serious case. On warnings, I think the, the critical thing is that why they're so important, and we're really talking about um, employees covered by unfair dismissal, uh, which is most employees, but you know, if you want some more advice on that, I'm sure we've got our publication, don't we, the termination. But if, if your employee falls into the unfair dismissal jurisdiction and they're dismissed for unsatisfactory performance, one of the criteria that's considered in, in whether the dismissal is unfair is whether or not they were warned for that performance. Yes, so um, the full bench in Bastidia and Goodwin are set out that a warning must identify the relevant aspect of the employee's performance which is of concern to the employer and the warning must make it clear that the employee's employment is at risk unless those performance issues are addressed. In relation to the making it clear that the employee's employment is at risk, they've said that a mere exhortation that the employee is to improve his or her performance is not sufficient. So they need to actually set out what the consequences yeah. of that will be. Yeah. And, and it's funny because when you talk to clients about this, you know, we've drafted so many warning letters that say, you know, if this does not improve, it may result in termination of employment. And clients commonly say, oh, do I have to say that bit? Yeah. It's like, yes, that's really the only bit you have to say. And if you think about it logically, like what is a warning? A warning is yeah. this is going to happen. And that's it? Like, of course there's going yeah. to be... It's not, logically, it's not a warning. Like, mm. it is not a warning. You know, if you have a small child and, and, you, and you're trying to tell them about the dangers of traffic, you have to tell them you might be hit by a car if you walk on the road. <laughs> that's what a warning means. And, you know, and we see this in um, medical negligence cases, like which is the, the, the failure to warn cases. Um where a, a physician's duty to actually warn, okay, you might die from this procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there may be a 5 to 10% chance of dying. That's the, the level. Actual termination. Re- actual <laughs> termination <laughs> in that case. Employment <laughs> termination. That's right. So, Sorry, that was a bit dark. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does need to, that, that does need to, uh, to be required. And, and it depends a little bit. And, and, you know, there's often a third element added in, um, which is, I guess a part of a part of that is that they need to be given probably a genuine chance to actually improve yeah and in, and in doing so that implies a sort of a length of time or at least a period of time um, where that improvement is possible so you're warning something somebody of a, of a failure to be able to do you know a complex task dismissing them the next day is not going to give them a chance to improve yeah you know there's a few examples, and my rule of thumb, generally the default position is around one month, but but I think this depends, and, and I, like the example I've often given to clients is if you warn a waitress about being rude and grumpy to customers, and they receive the warning on a, on a Thursday and then Friday and Saturday night, they just don't improve at all, then arguably you say, okay, well, they just didn't improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they didn't do it. They were given a, a chance to improve the, the next two days and they didn't. You know, I would say, okay, they've had the warning. They ignored the, the warning. Another example you might have is, for instance, if a salesperson's KPI was to visit a client every three months and they were only managing to get to every client every six months, they had a large territory, for instance. If you gave them a warning, you've got to give them well, at least three months 
yeah. to see whether they've complied or not because it's just simply not possible to judge whether or not they have. So I think that genuine opportunity depends a lot on the, on the context. And I think on the response of the employee as well. I mean, you see those situations where someone gets warned and they, they respond by saying, that didn't happen, that doesn't apply to me, that's yeah. not correct. Yeah. So if they're unwilling to take it on board and they're very vocal about that, it might be a shorter period of time as well. Absolutely. But it's also useful in terms of just managing a business so if you give a warning, maybe you're not visiting, the example of not visiting a client every three months. Yeah. And that employee might actually be able to explain the circumstances that, that has led to that. And you can actually learn a little bit about how their role is playing out in practice. And that can actually be an opportunity to absolutely. understand the business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, you know, in a way like consultation. I mean, you know, a lot of the time, again, if you have effective PDs, effective KPIs, you're going to know... and you're going to know enough about the business to, to set those expectations right. If yeah. your whole workforce can't achieve their KPIs, then... It's not the workforce. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. I think, you know, in summary, be as specific as possible about what constitutes the poor performance, including um, referring to the PD, KPI, etc. Detail how the employee can improve the, the performance to the required standard. Um, set out a reasonable time frame. Where appropriate, support the employee, um, provide additional training, and we're going to talk more about that in terms of the PIP, which is a, a much more structured concept, um, and fundamentally advise the consequences that the failure to improve is termination. Generally speaking, this needs to be in writing. I think certainly, even from an evidentiary point of view, if you're going to do it, you need to do it in writing if you're going to prove it later. But you saw an interesting case very recently. Yes. Uh, there was a case recently where an employee had had, I guess, performance issues raised with her by her manager because she was using her personal mo- mobile phone excessively. Uh, oh, I think this one had a we had good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was a special listeners. mention. Um, <laughs> so as you may know, uh, 1,260 text messages yeah. were sent. Wow. Um, In a day? No. Oh, no, no, it was over a... We talked about this, month, month, didn't yeah. we? Oh, but Courtney didn't. Courtney wasn't here. I wasn't on the last yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, But what was interesting about it from a performance manager's management perspective was she was never issued with a written warning. Her manager had warned her verbally uh, about the concerns and had mentioned that termination was a possible consequence. If it didn't improve, she asked her to put her phone away, only use it during lunch breaks, things like that which the employee took on. And when you mentioned the evidentiary standpoint, I think that's quite relevant because what she did after that conversation, the manager did take a really detailed file note about what happened. Um, Eventually, the employee's improvement didn't improve, or performance didn't improve. She was dismissed, she challenged it. Um, And what the Fair Work Commission said was that she had received a clear verbal warning and that was going to be sufficient. And they did go on to say that ideally a warning is in writing, it is clear, it sets it out, but they they were comfortable that she'd received an adequate warning and that was enough. Yeah. She wasn't. Are you texting during work? Is that what that is? (laughs) 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 The timing. A quick sort of caveat on all of this when we come to unfair dismissals is that the factors in Section 387, those factors are applied. All of them need to be considered by the Commission. That's the, sta- the statutory yeah. mandate is they need to be considered. 
but they can still determine harsh, unjust, unreasonable, even in the absence of certain things. So they're not elements in that strict legal sense. So when the um, commissions comes to the opinion that it, having considered everything holistically, that it's not unfair, um, sometimes those are the decisions. So th yeah. these things need to be taken with a pinch of salt. But I think from that evidentiary point of view, it doesn't say in a statute that it needs to be a written warning but I think they do need to be able to prove it. So file noting is, is great. I think if you've got a file note, at the very least what you can do is you can talk to, you can actually sit down, write an email to the employee yeah. afterwards and say, summary of our conversation, yeah. this is what was spoken about. Definitely. If you go on the other end of the spectrum, you know, the whole idea of just a general pep talk where this whole idea that you said, oh, I spoke to them all the time about their performance not being good enough, that doesn't constitute a warning. No. That's kind of stage one. That should be happening anyway. That doesn't constitute a you know, performance warning for, for these purposes. It should be just happening. Yeah. Performance warning has those fundamental elements. What are the problems? Make it clear what's going to happen. Give a timeline if possible around improvement or set some objective criteria about what the improvement's going to be and how long should it be. Now, performance improvement plan, that's a little different and because they're not necessarily going to help you anymore in an unfair dismissal situation. These, I think, if you're going to go to the extra consideration of doing a, a full-blown performance improvement plan, then I think that's where you really can see positive chances of the employee benefiting from the from the plan yeah. generally speaking they need to be more structured broken down into elements how the employee is underperforming the exact tasks in the position or the kpis that they're not meeting um, improvement specific improvement targets matched to each actual task and the dates by which the targets are to be reached total time frame in which the employee needs to improve so you might set a 12 week or a 16 week or a six month again depending on some of those contextual factors, and then setting out the steps that the employer or the manager or the supervisor will do to monitor and assist, and in particular, what supports can be provided, what training can be provided, what information. If it's a, if it's a skills thing, what help can be given. If it's a knowledge thing, what help can be given. Behaviours, again, what other behaviours, not improve your attitude, mate, <laughs> it's about, you know, these are the specific things, attending meetings and not saying anything at all, being late, arriving at half past nine and eating your breakfast at your desk, those types of things, those specific behavioural issues that you can point to as opposed to just generalised, intangible statements around attitude. There was one other thing you, that, you, that you'd looked at, Courtney, in terms of something... Yes, I looked at a case. Uh, there was a, yep, something. Um, there was a case that was about an employee's performance improvement plan. But basically, what they did was they were looking at the performance improvement plan that he'd been put on, and some of the circumstances leading to his poor performance were a lot of distressing personal things that had happened in his life, and they were actually looking at the appropriateness of the plan to address the reasons for his poor performance. And then they went on to discuss how there was conflicting information between his managers in terms of what his role involved. The manager conceded that he was going to push the employee to achieve his goals, um, which kind of added 
to the stress and kind of conceded that maybe the targets weren't actually achievable or like reasonable um, when looking at actually the performance that was required. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting takeaway from from that, and it was another really important point that I was going to raise about implementing PIPs, is that if you're going to do it... Do it well. Do it well. One interesting thing they did say was, like, they didn't... It's like you can implement the performance improvement plan, but you actually needed... They ne- he needed help, and they never provided that. And when he proposed, he was like, okay, I hear what you're saying, the issues are. Do you think this approach would help to fix it? Or this approach, I've got different ways we can handle this. And they just never... Yeah. Like, his managers never offered any assistance, yeah. and they based the Industrial Relations Commission was like, next time you put him on one, if you do have a mentor or a peer or someone that can actually yeah. work with him. I think it's an important point to make about performance improvement plans is that that they do need to contain fundamentally the supports as well as the criticisms. Yeah. They they need to be actively engaged in terms of supporting and 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 helping the employee move forward. It's really common when it's a common allegation that, that we see of employees saying, oh, I'm being bullied by being put on a performance improvement plan. Now, a vast majority of the time, I don't think that's the case. That There's poor performing employees that are feeling you know, under pressure and that's, that's mm. how they feel. I, no doubt that that's subjectively genuine perceptions, but it's, it's not happening. But I think in some instances it does happen. Mm. Uh, there is a, a tendency in some circles to use PIPs as a sort of a weapon, um, and whether that's designed to kind of make it so unpleasant that the employee leaves or who knows what it is. But I think it's not a very effective weapon. I think if you're going to do it, it needs to be done in good faith with mind to providing structures for improvement, and they can be very, very effective ways of getting genuine improvement out of people. If you're just interested in the legal mechanisms of how can I sack someone, I don't think performance improvement plan is appropriate. Um, th- that's more a case of, of warning or that's more a case of getting some external advice in terms of how to, how to mitigate your risk. I think the other really, really important takeaway, and I don't know if it was specifically mentioned in that case, Courtney, but when faced with an unfair dismissal situation, if you have policies or procedures of your own that are not followed, that then becomes a relevant consideration. You know, and in, yeah. and in the federal system, it's 387H, that any other matter that can, the commission considers relevant. If you have a performance improvement policy, if you have a performance management policy, if you have any of those things in place, they must be followed. So, so really, from that point of view, purely from a legal standpoint, I think the performance warning from an unfair dismissal um, standpoint is the critical one. And an employer that just warns the employee does nothing else, the improvement is not made and they terminate the employee, is going to be better off than an employer that introduces a, a PIP and bungles it. Yeah. yeah. So from that point of view, I, I think, and, and really I think if you're struggling with performance you know, management, there, there is help available. You know, and, and certainly it's something that you know we do a fair bit of, but there's other HR providers as well that can actually support this process because it can be going back to what we, we, we sort of introduced the podcast with, it can be a business killer to, to have team performance down. Fundamental takeaways, act early. 
Um, there's been some, some commission cases that demonstrate that if it's just not mentioned at all ever um, for a long period of time, uh, it can be very, very difficult then to show that you, you've, you've done enough when it comes to termination of employment and act decisively. Don't skirt around the issues, don't beat around the bush, don't hint. Hints are not effective <laughs> business mechanisms to, to, to talk about this issue. And really, I think that's it, unless you guys have got anything else to add. No, I think that's pretty much no. it. Yeah. yeah. The good, the bad, the ugly. What have we got? We're running out of, we're running out of stuff. We're doing too many podcasts, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I've tried to go a bit left field so that we don't copy each other today. Oh, good. <laughs> you mean you copy me? Like... <laughs> <laughs> so what did you have? Uh, my good to start out with, um, CBUS, which is the industry super fund uh, for the building, construction and allied industries, has agreed to lift its employees' wages by more than 10% across the next three years in their next enterprise agreement, um, which is intended to address the um, concerns about rising cost of living. So they're expected to vote on it next month. Um, so far, it's just an in-principle agreement, but the deal will make CBUS the first industry fund to offer paid parental leave of five months and also promise, they've also promised to pay 16.5% superannuation during unpaid parental leave, which oh, I thought was wow. a good step. That is good. That's interesting. Yeah. Anybody else? Goods? I've, I've cheated I've and I've just thought now about how I'm going to cheat. I've merged my good, bad and ugly all into one. Oh. No. Um, <laughs> go last then. Yeah. So I'm going to wait. Brian, what's your good? Um, just an interesting one, just a, um enterprise agreement dispute, Australian Rail, Tram and Bus Industry Union and Pacific National Services, um, where the full bench have um, confirmed that where there's a notice requirement on rosters, um, that's satisfied by text messages. Oh, I saw that. That yeah. was, Indeed. yeah, that is and good. I think it is. Well, it's interesting because the union are getting a, a little upset about it because apparently, you know, you can be texted one, like it's a 12-hour notice, mm. which isn't a great notice requirement, but you can be texted sort of one minute before and then, you know, possibly not even see the text message, etc. But uh, I think it's a sensible decision because I think text, people use text. I'd see that more likely than an email. Well, exactly. Example, that's what like, I was going to say. I think generally mm-hmm. that is the first thing you'd see, isn't it? And that's... You post it to me, I'll never find it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's likely to be the, the the thing that's used anyway, so it's sensible that they've they've taken that approach in my view um so that i thought that was good that's definitely a good that is a good shall i tell you my bad yes um cheated this badly. i'm so I proud know, of myself it's a new just thinking of this approach <laughs> on the spot um it better be really good and bad and ugly it's everything <laughs> yeah it's all rolled into one uh, but no, so my bad. Um, Fair Work Commission decision. There was a there were six shift managers who'd made an unfair dismissal application uh, because they were dismissed for refusing to complete um, stevedoring work, saying that it was outside of their oh, position yeah, descriptions, yeah. and uh, they weren't qualified to do it. Um, and the only reason why they were being asked to do it was because the usual stevedoring employees were on strike. And so the employer in this case submitted that the employees had failed to follow a lawful and reasonable direction to perform their duties. But the Fair Work Commission actually did hold that the directions weren't lawful or reasonable uh, as the position descriptions required shift managers to supervise, manage, 
etc. But didn't actually include any incident, incidental hands-on or manual labor right. in the description. Um, so uh, those sh- shift managers were actually reinstated, right. which is also quite rare. Yes. Uh, it, I was almost, it was all, almost my good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so it's bad that the conduct of the employer or the bad that they got reinstated? Yeah, the yeah, conduct yeah. of the employer. They had yeah, yeah, position yeah, yeah. descriptions. They were so close to following yeah. <laughs> following the PCC guidelines of <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. employer conduct. But, um, yeah, I think giving a direction actually that's outside someone's position description. Also, it sounds like a safety risk, which was also raised yeah. um, mm. when it comes to manual labor. Yeah. What's your bad? My bad? Well, I, I, I was looking at the stats that were published around um, by the Fair Commission on um, family and domestic violence leave. Ooh. And I thought it was interesting, and it's funny, I've said, I said some controversial controversial things before about DV leave, and I don't want to get into it, but what I noticed was that, I don't know if this is a good or a bad, but the more, employers with more than 100 people were most likely to offer the leave. It was 35% of employers over 100 employees did, which was good. Mm-hmm. 20% of small businesses from you know one to five employees offer DV leave, but it dwindled right in the middle. So you know apparently employers with 11 to 20 employees, only 12% offer it, and 21 to 50, only 13%. Yeah. So I think it's kind of bad. I mean, you, you, know, you would think that small businesses were the ones that were least likely due yeah. to financial pressures to do that. Um, but in a, in a sense, perhaps small businesses are just closer with their employees. Looking after them. Yeah, mm. but I thought it was kind of bad that the small businesses had such a spike, almost double the take-up rate than, than those med- medium-sized businesses. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, is it because uh, employees are, you know, because it's more available and that they're actually taking their employees up on it or is there a higher case of Whoa. you know it's... I don't know well I'm, you see I'm not and, and again I won't go too deeply into my philosophical objections because I'm not a big DV leave believer mm. I um, do you mean paid DV leave believer yeah I think so just to um, clarify yeah yeah no absolutely well well, you know unpaid is, is there and it's in and there's no there's no like I don't have any issue I my belief is that um, we should be supporting victims of um, domestic violence, 100%, and I'd, I'd be happy for the company taxes to go up, etc., etc. I don't know whether it should be a paid leave because I think, to me, it normalises it. I think, you know, the whole philosophy of annual leave and personal leave is, okay, these things happen, it's part of everyday life. I, I want people to be supported and I, and I want to pay more tax to support them. I don't know whether it's an employment issue and I, and I also wonder whether there's a problem because I think the uptake is so low because fundamentally there's still that problem that people don't come clean to their employer about about that. Yeah, I never put my mind to it before. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of things like that where, it, you know, responsibilities put on employers to pay things like, for example, superannuation while on unpaid parental leave when really that's a big you know, societal issue, for example, in terms of what puts women back in terms of wage gaps and things like that. So, yeah, um, yeah it applies to, to more than more than just the DV leave. Yeah, and I think it's the same objection that I have to the American system of tying um, medical mm, care or health insurance, insurance to employment. Yeah. You know, should, should your access to, to, to health mm. be tied to your employment? I don't think it should. Mm. Yeah. You know, should your access to, you know, paid DV leave be tied to the fact you're a full-time employee as opposed to a casual? Yeah. yeah. Because there's no question the casuals aren't going to, 
Yeah, well, it doesn't depend on who you're employed by, how big the business is. Exactly right. Yeah, so that's interesting. From that perspective, and look, the unions are pushing hard for universal DV leave, and this is what the, the statement is part of, or, or under the awards, sorry, right. um, paid DV leave. I just, as I say, I, I don't, it's, it's one of those things that's very difficult to talk about without coming across as... Pro-domestic violence. <laughs> no, that's right, which I'm not at all. It's just one of those things that, like, the, the best example is the is the, the the US system, health system. You know, it needs to be a universal solution that society provides, yeah, and I don't know that it necessarily should be tied to employment, and it specifically shouldn't be tied to full time employment, where mm. full time employees already have the advantage of four weeks annual leave and two weeks personal leave and some compassionate leave. Occasional employees have nothing. Uh, to me, it feels a little bit like virtue signalling. Some of the some of the, the the larger companies that do it, especially when they know full well that a lot of their employees aren't going to come clean to the extent mm. that you know, particularly in the corporate world, well, that that's why they're taking the leave. Often yeah. the groups that are being um, as significantly. Impacted. That's right. Although you do hear that it's it's it surprising. Happens. It can happen to anyone. Yeah. But, but certainly, I think, you know, someone in, a, in the corporate world working for a large employer. I do think part of it, though, is so if you're taking unpaid leave for a domestic, to deal with the domestic violence issue, you're not being paid. And financial, I guess, disadvantage is yeah. a key issue yeah. for domestic violence and oh. control. So it's like if you took that leave, the government's not as a policy perspective, they're not just going to top up your wage for that yeah, day. Yeah. And maybe they absolutely should, but I just feel like that's not going yeah. to happen. Yeah. So it's quite, I guess, the idea of them having to take the leave, take that pay cut, actually be at a financial disadvantage when trying to take steps to yeah, protect them. That's, yeah. It's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, very, a very good point. But, yeah. No, it's interesting. I never really thought about that. Um, it's good, bad. <laughs> well, it, the main the main bad thing I you know the the main message for me why I chose it as a bad was because I thought it was unfortunate that small business had higher take up because that's and and I would think I would guess that that's because small business is you know generally more f- you know family oriented and closer yeah, to different. their employees um, yeah. and it's sort of harder. To, to turn and, yeah. turn the uh, turn a blind eye to what's mm. actually happening in your workforce, and maybe yeah. it is in that and in maybe that middle ground. Employees, in, like we're saying, might be worried about getting stigmatized. Um, yeah, and therefore, whether or not it's the right policy approach to kind of addressing that particular yeah. issue. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, but I guess as well, you know, and devil's advocate against my own issue. Perhaps <laughs> we need all of these things. We need everything. Yeah. If an issue is that bad, then we we need to get on board but I just maybe as a small business person myself I've always sort of thought it's funny how quickly you go to the employer to fix non-employment problems Mm. as a way of avoiding the inevitable which is let's pay more tax yeah you know that's you know anyway that's a bit political for this so I think I'll definitely edit that out (laughs) I'm gonna add my controversial comment that will also probably get edited out but um (laughs) but also I mean we saw it with vaccinations yeah. Wasn't it? Just, you know, government's not wanting to mandate vaccines for everyone. Yeah. Let the let the employers do it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. it worked. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they got and mandated it anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. So I think we see in a lot of, you know, 
walks of life. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of superannuation, don't get me wrong, but even what you were saying about superannuation, you know, should superannuation be on the employer? I mean, it's the, obviously practically the most effective way to do it. Yeah. But it's, um, uh, you know... you know. But you could have a JobKeeper situation where uh, this has completely become a podcast about how to write social policy, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, if there's a situation where you can apply through your employer for paid domestic violence leave, for example, and then the employer can claim that back, for example, from the Yeah, that's right. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah, there's, yeah, like, yeah, a yeah. scheme. A scheme, that's right. Uh, ScoMo, if you're listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> he would be so interested in my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back to, we'll go no back to ScoMo. <laughs> Lawyer, of course. Um, we'll be back to ScoMo in a minute. Can we have your consolidated good, bad, ugly? I'm desperate to hear it now. I would love to. Okay. Should I, and then we'll do our should I tell you the that. whole scenario and then explain why it's good, why it's bad, and why yes. it's ugly? Yes. Absolutely. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is creative. Okay. So, the Fair Work Commission granted an extension to an unfair dismissal application that was lodged one day late, so outside the 21-day yeah. window. Um, the owner of the business his son had physically and verbally abused the employee and then told him he was fired. So the Fair Work Commission had found that the abuse and humiliation that he'd been subject to had constituted exceptional circumstances. Mm. So it's good that the extension was granted. Yeah. Because um, obviously we know the Fair Work Commission is incredibly strict, strict. when it comes to that 21-day yeah. limit. I'm surprised, yeah. I mean, one one day, you can generally get one day over. I mean, you'd be disappointed if you didn't get one day over mm. line. Yeah, you know, but but we're happy but about this. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this is good. So yeah. that was the good. Um, it hasn't gone any further. I've tried to see if there's been any updates. Yeah. we don't know. It's bad, obviously, and ugly because he was verbally and physically like pushed and abused, yeah. and then fired at the same time. And that whole thing is just absolutely horrific. And just so that's why it was bad and ugly, and the good was. The extension. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. well done. Well done. Yep. <laughs> really living up to the, you know. Mm. <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast for more, <laughs> more tips, <laughs> more life hacks. Living up to society. More life hacks. Thoughts about lawyers being like rule bending, like yeah. <laughs> Matt Damon from Rainmaker would be impressed. Is now a good time to tell listeners that one of your KPIs is participation in the podcast and the jury's still out on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not carry, I'm working smarter, not harder. <laughs> That's right. Do you have an ugly? Uh, I do, I do. Um, this might overtake our text message uh, decision. Ooh. This is the new juicy one. Um, so the Fair Commission has upheld the dismissal of a school crossing supervisor who made sexually demeaning remarks to an off-school program worker and had asked to touch her hair. Uh. And after he asked to touch her hair, which she declined, he asked, what are you doing this weekend? And, he sa- and she had answered that she's um, going to do some gardening. And he goes... Oh yeah, you're a dirty girl. I bet you like to get your hands dirty, don't you? Oh, which is just the ugliest. I mean, yeah. that is textbook horrific. Um, the commission uh, found that the school crossing supervisor's conduct was a breach of the employer's code of conduct and equal opportunity policy. So there's a reminder to have those codes and the policy in place, um, and it constituted serious misconduct under the Fair Work regulations. Yeah, because I think Ooh. that would have constituted sexual harassment under Section 28B. Mm. Yeah. Sex Discrimination Act easily, so yeah. it's going to be a valid that's, reason for dismissal. Anything that's unlawful automatically, it's got to be a 
there's been like when I was looking for this and I just didn't the reason I didn't find other bads all the bads I could find were just sexual harassment so cases. Much of it. there's well, been I'm so st- much of it and I was just a, I'm still yeah and, yeah I've still got there's got more, more to go on that oh, yes. <laughs> but I don't know if it's ugly that he said that or ugly that he said it and then thought he could actually take it to an arbitration for the commission I know that was that. challenging well it, I think his know. he he figured uh, they have a different employer, so she she was essentially a member of the public as far as the employer was concerned. Oh. So I think he thought uh, that that was why it wasn't um, somehow relevant yeah. to his employment. Yeah. Um, he was working. He was yeah. working. Um, anyway, it's, that's how it's relevant. It's <laughs> 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 Do you want to give him a call? Just free <laughs> <Some great> advice. <laughs> My my ugly is like related to that. It, it was, it's like it's in two parts, two different cases that I that I read in this period. One was um, I don't know if you guys saw the uni lecturer that yeah. was involved in a consensual um, sexual act with a student, and actually was reinstated, but the case was about trying to have his identity concealed. And one of the main reasons he wanted his identity concealed is his name is Scott Morrison. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And here's his name on the that, podcast. <laughs> well, because he said that, that that would generate media interest. Which it has. Which it has. We're the media. <laughs> this is it. This <laughs> is the interest. <laughs> no, but I thought that's in, that, that was an interesting one. But also yeah. there was another case where someone tried to run the entire and was refused to allow their entire um, hearing before the tribunal to be anonymous. Yeah. And it actually made me think, because it's something that we talk about all the time when we're advising clients about whether or not to proceed, etc., about reputational damage and the fact that once you're at arbitration or in court, if it's a um, general protection or something along those lines, once you're there, the cat's out of the bag, it's on the public record, all the rest of it, and it does become a disincentive for people. It can become a disincentive for employers to defend it can definitely become a disincentive for employees. Like often, when an employee, even if they're successful, like um, Mr. Scott. Morrison, um, even if they're successful, the publicity can be a major disincentive. Oh yeah. Um, for so it actually made me question for the first time. Maybe is that a good thing? Should should we be allowing these employment mm. situations to be conducted? And I've never thought um, before. I thought you know. Maybe it's, I've always presumed, you know, you presume it needs to be open. You presume it should be, you know, Well, it can still be open while calling them something else. Migration matters usually exactly. use, you know, especially yeah. oh, if it's asylum. That's one of the it's, things it's, that's hard about administrative mm-hmm. law is it's all X, Y, Z, P, K versus the minister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's really interesting you said that because there was a case I was reading about when I was trying to find my good, bad and ugly where an employee had refused to work with an employer because she'd found out later that he had been charged yeah. with sexual harassment yeah, in the past in one. another job yeah, and then was... she'd raised that as a concern with HR. And then yeah. I read another case where an employer found out later about a previous sexual harassment um, finding against an employee and they didn't promote him yeah. or something based on that. So. I've seen a lot of that coming no, back. No, there was. And the one where the person complained about working with the predator, mm. was, I think how she saw it, it ended up derailing her employment completely. Yeah, it was she, about her employment. She yeah. ended up getting, you know, having her employment terminated. Mm. 
But yeah, well, those cases just made me think, okay, is it something which is, you know, is, and this is where it's ugly, is employment litigation just too ugly? Mm. Would access to justice be improved if we did de-identify some of these cases more readily? On the other hand, would that just encourage litigation that's unnecessary because one of the major disincentives is that reputational side of things but and then it's on food the for thought on the other hand there's um, things like underpayments where you know obviously that would usually be um, a court not necessarily yeah no I was that. I was just meaning I don't I like I've got no issues with you know, <laughs> naming and shaming from that point of view I, yes. I, I guess it's more about someone challenging their employment and like yeah um, the, the the unfortunately named um, uni lecturer he he was reinstated and, and he's thinking about his reputation forward and when you sort of think, okay, you've gone to the point and you've challenged your dismissal and you've been reinstated but your name is still tarnished. Yeah. You know, maybe that is maybe that maybe it is to the, the publicity side of things, how many cases are not run because people don't choose that they don't mm-hmm. want the their name in the public record. I'll regularly come across a Fair Work Commission case where they talk about um, how someone's mental health was the reason for why they, you know, engaged in serious misconduct or underperformed or, and, and you know, maybe they um, do find that the dismissal was unfair. And I, even if the decision itself is interesting and, you know, of like, from a legal perspective, worth, you know, sharing on social media and that kind of a thing, I'll avoid them because I know yeah. that the employee's name would be out there. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was a good one. We managed to squeeze some good, bad, uglies out of a slow news mm. week again. My cousin Vinny. Yeah, not, not 12 Angry Men. Not 12 no. Angry Men. We'll keep that for next time. Okay. Um, what do we think? Oh, I liked it. I liked it. I liked it. I was... It was funnier than I expected. Like, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Well, and and it was it was funny. I actually because my wife suggested it, and she sent me an article that was claiming how authentic it is. And mm. I because I remember seeing it in the night, like when it came out. Yeah. Just remember it being kind of just like a funny movie, but I don't know the authenticity part. I, I guess we'll we'll get to that. But so oh yeah, for the listeners, uh, my cousin Vinny is story about two young guys on their way from. Brooklyn um, to UCLA and when they stop in Alabama they stop at a convenience store they drive away and then they're arrested because in the interim the convenience store owner is murdered they um, the protagonist Ralph Macchio his Karate Kid uh, Karate Kid which I'll go back to (laughs) in a second his um, his cousin Vinny is Joe Pesci uh, and um, Joe's fiance, um, Vinny's fiance, um, Lisa, played by Marissa Tomei, um, come to town and um, defend him. And it's sort of quite a hilarious kind of comedy, really. It's not mm. n- not a legal drama, but it's got lots of good courtroom action. So we looked at it. So yeah, without giving any spoilers, I guess that's the basic synopsis. But I liked it. Now, Ralph Macchio, I actually, I'm going to just make that comment, having watched a lot of Karate Kid and Cobra Kai <laughs> lately, I was actually surprised how good an actor he can be if he's got no lines. <laughs> <laughs> if he just has to sit and look forlorn, he actually pulled it off. Yeah. So I was pleased with that. But I, I liked them. I liked Vinny. I thought that was clever. Yeah. Uh, Marissa Tomei's character was a fave. I got yeah. 
I mean, obviously, it was infuriating that Joe Pesci, who is 20 years older than Marissa Tomei, and they try to pull them off as if they're, like, a reasonable couple that you'd, like, they're come not. across. They're not at all. No. I, not in a million... It's fine. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I just... And I... Uh, and I also kind of... It's, it's hard to see what he's bringing to that relationship. No, yeah. It's it such it a nice movie in that one. respect. Yeah. It's just, you know, all of the arguments where, you know, she's been so reasonable and so smart, and then suddenly she just has a fit about something and she's yelling at him. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just like, what's well, women? But I was going <laughs> to ask right. you guys specifically, that's one of the things I was going to ask as feminists, how did you find the movie? Like, I, I was sort of a bit taken aback by some of the. I know it was a comedy, but, like, just the gender stereotypes. And oh, like, no, yeah. The, such a... You kind of... Ex- I was ex- you expect it. Yeah. Like, I didn't... Yeah. Yeah. For its time, I, I wasn't surprised, but... Um, and they still did keep, like, Lisa as a character. She was a little strong woman. Like... Yeah. They still, like, without giving anything away, when she was in the witness box, like... She, Very well-spoken. Yeah, 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 they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very smart. They played it a little bit, but then... I think overall she came off looking. But just the, the whole like, narrative where the, you know, the pretty... Oh, it's infuriating. Is, ...is just, you know, like, comes up with these bright ideas and, oh, who would have thought she'd have a smart idea, yeah. you know? But also just, like, I think I wouldn't be quite as disappointed if the script had been better. The things she raised made no sense. Like, it, I just didn't see... Like, it just, as a... From, like, the script perspective, yeah. it made did not add up at all. Like, you're watching it, and you're just like, where did this come from? There, they wasn't set up right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, would, it didn't suit her character. It, it was completely just left side. And, yeah, which, and it felt... Mean, like, her knowledge about the... No, no, the arguments. Like, yeah, I felt yeah, like it was yeah. so Women to be forced. married. You don't oh, know what you're doing, and I can't you. help you. And so I'm forced. Yeah. angry now. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I don't... Like, she spoke a lot about, like, working in garages and having lots of brothers and uncles. I just don't think that was consistent with her character in any other aspect oh, of the I movie. see. Like the, the, the female needing, hysterical neediness yeah. sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It wasn't, yeah. And interestingly enough, Marissa Tomei actually won an Oscar for yeah. Best Supporting Actress in this role. Yeah. So. I, well, that's what I was going to... Because it was a scandal because there was a whole theory that she didn't deserve it. Like there was a whole people saying the card was written out wrong. Or, I'm, it's like... The, like, it's part of her movie. whole career that she's it's an Oscar that she shouldn't have won. The others which, didn't like win yeah. Oscar. <laughs> I mean, I was surprised because I, I just don't think it's an Oscar-worthy film. It's a fun film, no, but yeah, it's, that's that's my issue with it. Not necessarily her part in it. Again, she was my favorite. Like, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of what you were saying about whether or not it, re- it was realistic, the director Jonathan Lynn uh, has a law degree, and so he insisted on it being as realistic as possible. Oh, yeah, right. And at IMDb actually said that the film has been screened in law schools to illustrate courtroom procedures. Oh, okay. And I'm assuming in the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I thought I thought what struck me as real, and I've never done a murder trial, I'm not, I have no knowledge of criminal law. So Despite all those terminated it. employees. <laughs> <laughs> best joke on the podcast. <laughs> um, absolutely. The... The thing that struck me as having realism was the fact that, you know, the case was entirely circumstantial and the way that Vinny attacked each element of the case yeah, to just try and mm-hmm. get, like, he was really aiming until the final stuff where, you know, the, 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 they, you know, 
they end up winning in great style, which you've got to have in a movie. Like, mm. all the way up to that, like, the lady with the glasses, the guy with the breakfast, yeah. how long do the grits take to cook, and all of that stuff. It was more just, okay, just let... Because it was circumstantial, they didn't have a, a murder weapon, they didn't really have anything other than the guys leaving at the time. The fact that he just really did actually open up that kind of doubt, and I think that mm. is actually the conventional approach to... Major spoiler there, though. I mean, you just told everybody. About the grits. Sorry. <laughs> the, grit, the grits moment. I was watching it, and I was like, this is the legally blonde permed hair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Courtroom scene. Which like, is Yeah. It was, it was, it was great. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But, the, yeah. but the devil is in the details, and I think all law is actually like that. I think that's authentic. You know, he's like he's at the cafe at the beginning. He doesn't even know what grits are. <laughs> and then by the time... But those details do tend to win cases yeah um you know and so from that point of view i thought it, i thought i don't know that was quite good and it was it was entertaining law like the judge was great oh that yeah i liked was the judge. Great. and he yeah. softened which yeah. i liked the public defender who i've seen in a lot of movies i thought was really cool i, I wasn't cool on the speech impediment being funny i felt again. uncomfortable with that so did i, I that was a bit yeah just distasteful again i have an endless amount of pointless IMDb facts. The actor himself had almost refused to do it because he used to have a stutter and he had been typecast in stuttering roles, but wow. because he was friends with the director, he did it as a favor to him. Yeah. Um, oh. And ended up doing it anyway. He's in heaps of movies, that guy. He's so iconic. Yeah. That, like, he's in um, that movie, The Front Page, that old movie. Uh, I've seen him in a whole lot of different things, but he's, mm. yeah. But that's so he nearly refused because he actually had a stutter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he had, he used to. Yeah, right. So, and he was trying to get kind of out of that. Yeah. Being typecast in that. Mm-hmm. Just with going back to how realistic it was or wasn't, and one of the things when I was watching it, I, I thought my criticism was that it makes it out to seem as though all you need to be a lawyer is to be a really great, you know, good at arguing, um, where you don't need any legal knowledge, just facts. Um, yeah. And, you know, you'll trottle on and figure out the process. Yeah. Um, but I read that apparently that entire scene where he objects to the um, expert ev- expert witness yeah. um, being brought on with the warning, and he that's the first time where he actually makes a legal argument, and it's really succinct and well said. Yeah. Um, and the judge says, that was really well put, but no, like yeah. overruled. Yeah. Apparently, under American law, that would have been reason for a retrial. That right. he could have argued that that was, um, you know, whether it's mistrial under their terms or, or whatever yeah. it is. So that actually shows some legal acumen, which I thought was made it better. From Vinny? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. That he actually yeah. does have some legal knowledge. Yeah, which well he got from great, Lisa because obviously. Where was that book? I really liked the scene where he thought he had, like, convinced the other side to give him the evidence. And he was like, I really oh, want to yeah, see your boasted. evidence. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> he gave it to me. And he was so proud of it. And he boasted like, to Lisa yeah. about it. And she's like, they have to, dummy. <laughs> it was great. Well, for me, my least favourite, I just, I didn't like the whole waking up in the middle of the night, the, the train and the whistle and the... Mm. the do you know, everywhere they try and sleep, I just didn't think they needed that. No, same as the argument. Slapstick. Was, yeah. I found the opening scene. Well, once they're arrested and they're being interviewed by the police, and no one really understands what's going on yet. Yeah. I hate 
and miscommunication in a movie. Oh, yeah. It was infuriating yeah, watching well, it just them. Makes you cringe. I can't handle it. Yeah, and I know it's funny, but yeah. just drives me nuts. <laughs> mm. Oh, mm. Overall, I liked it. I think same. Eight. I'm kind of feeling an eight too. I don't know oh, if yeah. that's too high based on my other ratings. I just can't remember. It but might be a bit too high, but I sort of feel like yeah, a seven point eight, a seven point nine. <laughs> yeah, I thought seven was too low. Eight's too high. Like at seven point seven. Wow. Seven point seven. Okay. Mm. I didn't know that we were going, we were, getting, we were decimalizing this. I thought we were hard. There are no rules. Did you hear Courtney cheat during Goodbye? Ugly? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Break rules. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, next time we're doing 12 Angry Men, whatever happens, aren't we? Woo. Yeah. Um, so thanks for listening if you made it this far. Um, if you've got any questions about the stuff we've been talking about, um, happy to for you to call the office or, or, or look us up on, on LinkedIn or online, if, especially if you're needing help with managing underperformance. Next week as well, we're actually doing managing injured and sick employees which is really the other side of the same coin. Completely different legal issues, but I think they sort of go hand in hand. So thanks very much, and we'll we'll see you then. Mm